Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Beth Darnell with us. Dr. Darnell is an associate professor, psychologist, speaker, author, and the director of the Stanford Pain Relief Innovations Lab. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Colorado Boulder and has spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, given testimony to the FDA and the US Congress and participates on the CDC Opioid Workgroup, highlighting considerations for the treatment of chronic pain and the opioid crisis. Beth, we are thrilled to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Sam, it's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Beth, I want to jump right into it. And I want to have a better understanding for, for me and for our listeners today about the, the broad scope of chronic pain in America in general. You know, as I prepared for this podcast and also just some awareness of reading beforehand, I was looking at some research that suggested as many as 50 million adults in the United States experience chronic pain every day. And given that we've got this aging population of baby boomers in America, rising medical costs, and a history of overprescription of opioids for pain-related concerns, I was thrilled to have you on today. I feel like this is such an important topic for us as health service psychologists. And I'm really interested to have a better understanding of what chronic pain is on a broadest level and, and how it's different from more acute types. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So. Pain is defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain, um, the IASP, and they define pain as a noxious sensory and emotional experience. They actually updated the definition of pain in 2020 to also account for the social impacts of pain. So the first thing that I love to highlight is that pain is truly a biopsychosocial experience, which is really fascinating when we think about it because we don't tend to treat it that way. So this is right, really right. where, yeah, this is really where psychologists can have such an important role. In terms of your question about how acute pain is different from chronic pain, for chronic pain, the definitions are pain extending beyond three months. Sometimes okay. people use a six month threshold or beyond expected time of healing. Acute pain is typically thought of as pain lasting three months or less. So really the only difference between acute and chronic pain is the amount of time that it's been experienced. Right, right. That helps. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up that concept of the biopsychosocial model. As psychologists, I think there's probably plenty of exposures that we've gotten to that, that concept and that philosophy. And yet, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about it within the context and framework of chronic pain. Yeah. It makes me wonder about other training disciplines and other providers' backgrounds and exposure to that idea and how as psychologists, we can work on like an integrated team to, to help others kind of get behind that idea or if others are already there. Yeah, no, I mean, it, this has been really a massive problem in, in the United States where um, pain education has been so poor across all disciplines and psychology is no different. 
So as recently as 2012, physicians would only have a few hours of pain education throughout wow. years of medical training. Veterinarians wow. would have double the amount of uh, training in pain relative to physicians. Psychologists would basically receive none. So I led the study of the, the first examination of psychology training and psychology needs specific to pain in the United States. And so we surveyed close to 2,000 individuals, 1,000 patients, and 1,000 professionals, which included psychologists, mental health therapists, physicians, physician assistants, nurses, et cetera. And we wanted to understand what are the barriers to people accessing psychological treatment for chronic pain? And well, as you can imagine, there were a lot of different reasons that contributed to it. But one of the biggest was, well, I'll tell you, there were two big ones, but they sort of link together. There's not enough trained psychologists to address the needs of right. the nation of people who have pain. So you mentioned 50 million Americans with chronic pain. There's 100 million Americans with ongoing pain of some type. It may not meet the wow. formal definition, but one in three are living with pain. We don't have enough trained professionals to address their needs. So how are we going to up train the workforce? So this is twofold. I mean, one is providing professional training to existing psychologists and mental health therapists. Um, the other is integrating psychological um, treatment and education, pain education into undergraduate psychology training, graduate school, postgraduate, postdoctoral fellowships. We need to better integrate in evidence-based treatments for pain. And then to your point, Sam, we need to better educate um, interprofessionals about the role of psychology in the experience and treatment of pain. I feel like word is getting out. It's just being, it's been excruciatingly slow. And, you know, as we continue our conversation, I'll have a chance to describe to you some efforts that we're making to directly address this. Yeah, Beth, I, I appreciate you highlighting. And, and, you know, it's helpful for me too, not to take it for granted, right? Because we might've been exposed to that term of biopsychosocial model, that might not translate to training in treating chronic pain, as you're saying, and real education as trainees in graduate school or even before that. I wanna come back to that topic because that, that feels very important for the future of, of treating chronic pain and, and us as health service psychologists in general. I'm curious on that, that broader landscape level as well around how chronic pain can affect someone's productivity at work, satisfaction in life, and their overall mental health are functioning? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, chronic pain, uh, obviously it's an individual experience and there's wide variability, but for some people, it, it can lead to some devastating changes in one's life where one may experience um, limitations in activities or functioning. So this is what we commonly will call uh, high impact chronic pain where, you know, most people who have high impact chronic pain are not able to work. 
and they can even have difficulty with self-care, for instance. And so it's really debilitating. But even for those who don't have high impact chronic pain, but just chronic pain in general can uh, impact our energy level, our ability to participate in social activities, work activities. It can alter the roles that we even have within our own family. If, if a person is a caregiver, but their ability to be a parent or a caregiver is um, negatively impacted, that can um, lead to a, a lot of losses in one's life. So losses in terms of feeling that one is contributing productively, but also losses in terms of how we connect with one another. And, and so then as one is not able to participate, one's world can become smaller and smaller, less active. And that right there, that cycle of decreased activity and social connection is really something we want to address with, with patients because it can lead to increased depression, anxiety, social disconnection, grief, and all of that can actually directly impact pain, can worsen pain and the disability that's experienced from pain. Yeah, I think there's a heaviness here, Beth, as you're talking through it. Honestly, a heaviness in my chest of like this idea of I, I can sort of, I can't imagine that pain. And yet, as you talk through it, I'm sort of seeing this isolation in the pain that can sometimes result. I want to kind of go back a little bit and, and say, like, how, how does chronic pain come about? What causes it? Boy, um, it's complex and multifactorial. You know, some chronic pain is congenital. People mm. are born with medical conditions of various types and, and pain is one component of it. For the majority of people, chronic pain is something that's acquired later in life. And that could be associated with a disease condition like osteoarthritis or Lyme disease or, you know, cancer. I mean, so we acquire certain diseases or illnesses throughout life and pain is one component of it. For other people, it can occur following an incident or an injury, like a car accident. And while that's associated with an incident, we know that there are aspects of the individual that contribute to the likelihood of the impact of the pain that will be experienced and the duration that pain will be experienced. So. I want to give you an example of that. Yeah, please. So it's common that people will experience difficulty in childhood. A lot of people will experience adversity or what we call adverse childhood experiences. So that could be neglect. It could be physical or sexual abuse, trauma of some type. And that history of trauma actually has bearing on the amount of pain that we ex are likely to experience later in life in response to a traumatic injury, such as a car accident. And so there are really interesting researchers conducting cool studies 
unpacking why this is. And, and again, it's multifactorial, but trauma impacts our immune system. It, it can actually alter some of our genetics and turn on certain genes that make us more responsive to these events and more vulnerable to the pain. We also know that some of these events can influence other factors such as gut microbiota, and then that can interact with whole person systems to similarly influence the amount of pain we experience. And then, you know, the obvious one is that when we have a history of trauma, we may have mood problems, we may be more anxious, we may have post-traumatic stress disorder or symptoms of it. And PTSD, as one example, boy, our nervous system is on high alert all the time. And, and that overactive nervous system will be more responsive to painful stimuli and can help basically, unfortunately, it can facilitate and entrench pain in the nervous system and it makes it much, much harder to treat. So as a psychologist, if, if I know that somebody has PTSD and chronic pain, we have to treat the PTSD first. Right. Um, because it's such a poor prognostic indicator for chronic pain. Wow. Wow. And I, I really appreciate your, your use of the word, your word multifactorial, because as you're talking through it, I'm like, wow, there are so many different intersections. And I can see how when you have one particular type of service provided, like if you just go to a general practitioner for, for chronic pain treatment, you might be missing out on all of these different factors that are coming up or might be historically relevant to the significance that someone has experienced chronic pain today. And it makes me think a lot about our history of medicalizing or only medicalizing the treatment of chronic pain and often using, uh, using opioid-based prescription medications to do just that. Yeah. And I know, you know, in recent years, there has been a growing call for deprescribing opioids or avoiding their use when possible and finding ways to treat chronic pain specifically through other means. But it makes me kind of wonder, how are opioids used today? How have things changed? What's, what's the landscape looking like now? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really well recognized now that opioids should not be a first line treatment for chronic pain. But after other options have failed, I mean, after we have tried um, many different avenues, as well as applied a biopsychosocial approach, and if pain and function are not improved, then there can absolutely be a place for opioids within the context of a comprehensive pain care plan for some people. So we have to keep in mind that any one treatment is not going to be perfectly right for everybody. I mean, there's individual variability in terms of treatment needs and also in terms of treatment response. So this is really why we need a patient-centered care plan so that we address the needs of each individual and their unique circumstances. So for people with some rare diseases, multiple medical conditions and other treatments, have been tried and they fail, opioids can be a critical part of them maintaining function. So what we've seen is that 
you know, there was this, you know, decade or decade and a half of over prescribing, meaning that opioids were prescribed quite liberally. There was a biomedical approach where it was really often just pill-based. And this persisted until about 2012, where we saw that there was really a plateau. And then in 2016, the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids was published. And Unfortunately, there was a misapplication of this guideline that led to some really negative consequences because the, the pendulum swung so far in the other direction that now we see that people who are living with these complex medical conditions who were perfectly stable and doing well on a moderate amount of opioids have been forced off of them, sometimes rapidly in in harmful fashion. And this has led to a destabilization that has inflicted not just physical harm, but also psychological harm. So as a psychologist who historically was very much focused on bringing forward the behavioral medicine approaches, in recent years, that has included advocacy for patient protections to access the pain treatment that they need. And that can include opioids. So it's an interesting position for a psychologist, but it's so important for us to recognize that we're treating the person, not the pill. And so recognizing that we need a patient-centered approach. Beth, would it be appropriate, I'm kind of hearing you talk through the history of overprescribing opioids, and then all of a sudden, what I'm hearing you kind of say is it felt like a switch just turned off. Yeah. And they just completely turned off that switch and it made it really difficult for those that actually need it and would really benefit from it to be able to even access care. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's what I have referred to as the second opioid crisis, wow. which is the people who need opioids to function are no longer able to access them. I mean, there are stories of patients who, this is acute pain, but patients who just had brain cancer and are not able to get their opioid prescription at the pharmacy without jumping through three different hoops that include checking with the insurance company, calling the surgeon to verify. I mean, we've lost the plot, you know? I mean, we've really lost the plot and currently, the, what we see in terms of opioid-related deaths, those are related to illicit or synthetic opioids and not the medically prescribed opioids. So we really need help in the medical community to help people access the care that they need. And this is not just a medical issue. I mean, this is psychological, mental welfare that is at stake for these folks. We've seen increased suicidality and even increased suicides from patients who have been cut off from their medical care. It's really tragic. Wow. Wow. Very much so. Yeah, Beth, and I appreciate you calling attention to this, this secondary crisis that has now resulted. In preparation for our podcast today, I was spending a lot of time reflecting on the clients that I have served and continue to serve today, many of whom identify pain as a part of what is bringing them in yeah. to care, you know, from lower back concerns to arthritis, 
to pains without known etiologies, at least from the medical side of things, the, yeah. the physical medical side. And, and many of these folks have suffered mightily and feel like they've got nowhere else to go. And at every stage of my training and practice, I've, you know, I've worked with them and thought, gosh, I, I wonder what I can do better. You know, what can we be doing better as health service psychologists to treat those that are experiencing chronic pain? And, and this is probably the, the highlight and thing that makes me most excited to have you on today, Beth, is, is how we might be helpful, how we can treat chronic pain and what evidence-based interventions we might use. Yeah, no, it's such an it's such an important question, Sam. And I feel like the most important thing that we can do as psychologists is to work to integrate psychology into pain care as early in the process as possible. So what we want to do is really equip individuals with the information and skills so that they can learn to help themselves, so that they can better manage pain and distress that results from pain. Because without that toolkit, unfortunately, our natural human hardwired responses to pain and the changes that pain inflict in our lives that is going to contribute to the persistence of pain and the worsening of pain. So left on its own devices, if we're not integrating psychology early on into pain care pathways, then we're setting up patients to have worse pain and a longer trajectory. And then the worst thing that happens in, in the United States is that we then try medical treatment after medical treatment after medical treatment. And it's only after they have all failed that someone recommends that uh, the patients be referred to psychology. And can, can we all appreciate how demoralizing that is I for am. a patient to hear? They feel like they have failed, that everyone's abandoning them, that it's all in their head, and that their pain is psychological. And none of those things are true. We have failed in medical care to treat pain the right way early on and that contributes to this whole failed process um, and the prolongation of pain. So, you know, part of what I do is help bring forward the solutions that can um, contribute to a transformation in how we treat pain in America. And so recognizing that we need to integrate behavioral medicine early on, I mean, day one, if possible, we right. need brief, evidence-based, actionable, plug-and-play strategies that, that therapists can bring to patients in mass, in, in primary care settings, in pain clinic settings, or even in therapeutic settings in the communities. That's really what's needed. And that's, that's what my work focuses on. I have, um, for the past eight years, been creating and investigating brief, effective treatments that can accomplish this goal so that we can rapidly uptrain the existing psychological workforce to be able to competently address pain and rapidly equip individuals with the skills that they need to favorably alter the trajectory of their pain. Beth, as you're talking through it, I'm uh, 
putting myself in the shoes of a, a patient or client coming through the door and kind of finding their way and being pushed through from place to place. And then finally, as you say, that last place that they go to is a psychologist and that, and it's not their fault, but it is largely this like systemic structure that they're, that they get kind of shuffled around until that point. At least that's kind of what I'm hearing as you talk through it. And gosh, as I hear it too, it, it must put us at a disadvantage too. If, if that's how it's, you know, being talked about, you know, the last resort or the last place, we can't find another reason for it. Well, the last place you got to just go to a psychologist and talk to somebody about it. And that's, that, we're already kind of starting at a disadvantage. So I love to hear this idea of being able to incorporate our expertise, our behavioral health knowledge early in the game so that we can work together, that this can be much more of a multidisciplinary team. As you talk through, Beth, I'm also finding myself really curious if you can tell me more about what you've been working on, what you've been finding, this specific program too. You really nailed it. Our expectations about whether or not a treatment is going to help us, whether or not it's going to work, is a powerful predictor for whether or not we actually obtain benefit or relief. And so the way that our current healthcare system is structured, we've set patients up to have a poor response to psychological treatment because it's the treatment of last resort. So it's a, it's not only a disservice to patients, but it's a complete disservice to the entire field of psychology. So the way to help patients win and the way to demonstrate that psychology is truly beneficial treatment for pain is to integrate it right up front. And this is the cultural transformation that's needed, um, where I like to see physicians and clinics talk about the treatment of pain as being integrated and comprehensive, that we are dedicated to delivering whole person pain care, and that there's an expectation that patients participate in whole person pain care because we know that that will gain them the best results. So so notice that with this type of approach, we're not singling anyone out to go to the psychologist because things have failed. We're coming at this completely differently. We oh. deliver whole person pain care and the expectation is that you will participate in this. So we're reducing stigma around psychology. And then we need to provide clinicians with the treatments that similarly are effective and reduce stigma. So to accomplish that goal, I developed a single session pain class called Empowered Relief. And I developed Empowered Relief out of the basic awareness that while eight session cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain is effective, it's often inaccessible because there are few therapists who deliver this treatment. There's barriers with insurance. Patients can't come to eat sessions or they can't deal with the co-pays. They're working. Um, and some patients just don't want it, to be honest. I mean, they want help, but they want help in a way that, that works with their lives and, and the way that they want to receive that help. Patients need options. So, so what I did was I empowered relief as a distillation of evidence-based skills and elements that I drew from 
cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, there's mindfulness principles, and there's pain neuroscience education. I took all of that and I compressed it into a single two hour pain class. So it's dense, it's didactic, it's not psychotherapy. And it's uh, what's unique about it is that you can deliver this intervention at scale because the largest class that I've had with Empowered Relief is 85 patients. And I, wow. invite, yeah, I invite family members to attend, to further destigmatize it. And so that we're treating the whole family system so that family members can learn how to best help the person who's living with pain. During the class, patients and family members learn about pain, the role of psychology, what they can do to best manage their pain. And they learn three core skills and then complete a personalized plan for relief. They also receive a downloadable MP3 audio file along with the treatment package. And we have been studying this um, in a, a large NIH funded clinical trial that was a comparative effectiveness study, a comparative efficacy study. And this is in review and, and soon to be published. So I can't give you the all the punchline, but what I can tell you is that our hypotheses for non-inferiority for a single session compared to eight weeks were met for wow. pain catastrophizing, pain intensity, and pain interference reduction. So basically what we're showing is that an accessible single session class can provide effective pain relief at scale. So we're super excited about this. And this isn't to obviate the need for eight sessions for some patients, but what it does is it ex expands pain relief, comprehensive pain care to, you know, potentially millions of people who might need it. So what we're doing now is we're training clinicians to deliver this single session intervention, Empowered Relief. I host clinician certification workshops through Stanford University. We offer 15 and a half hours of APA CEs to psychologists and mental health therapists, but we also certify physical therapists, physicians, nurses, it's an interprofessional training, and this is delivered in an, a two-day intensive workshop. And once people are certified, they have all of the materials, everything that they need to embed this evidence-based class into their healthcare organization or their clinic. To date, we have certified 300 instructors. It is available in four languages and being delivered wow. in seven countries now. So we're really wow. excited to, to move it out into the world. That's incredible. That's incredible. And, and really, really exciting to hear that, you know, it sounds like you're, you're meeting the needs both of the clients and patients we serve, but also for providers to, to get up to speed. As you talk through this, uh, I'm, I'm actually curious about a couple things, you know, partly the specific interventions used and partly what this means for our training as a field. 
the the intervention of of having this kind of care plan going forward is something I want to start with, Beth. Like, what do people leave with uh, the patients or clients when they they leave a training like this? What what is their plan? What might that look like? Yeah, yeah. So we use a standardized plan that includes, I, I mentioned there's three core skills that people learn in the Empowered Relief class. And then, you know, of course, the key isn't just to learn the skills. The, the key is always applying that information to ourselves. And right. so participants are encouraged to sort of create little goals about how they're going to apply this information to make it personal so that going forward, when individuals are noticing that they're focusing on pain or worrying about their pain, they can pull out their plan, their personalized plan, and they can work through the steps, one, two, three, and they know exactly what they need to do to essentially, you know, what it's, it's sort of what I call either putting down the can of gasoline or changing the channel in the brain so that we're not unwittingly driving um, more attention to the pain because pain is naturally distressing and our brain is wired to want to focus on it. Um, but part of the trick of pain management, the, the solution is to learn to calm our nervous system and to be able to shift the brain away from an unhelpful and entrenched pattern and, and to steer the brain towards helpful, calming and soothing states that can help extinguish some of these automatic patterns that serve to amplify pain. Now, none of this is going to cure a person's pain condition. We're, we're not going to take away the fact that a person, you know, had, had a spinal fusion surgery or they have osteoarthritis. I mean, people have underlying medical conditions and all pain is real. But what we want to do is provide our patients and clients with a critical skill set that allows them to calm their nervous system and cultivate a degree of control that will help them best contain their pain experience. And we see from our research that this leads to lasting relief. We wanna help our patients get that 30% reduction in pain and distress. Sometimes people even get more relief and all of this being medication free. So no negative side effects. Right, um, right. And it's, that doesn't necessarily obviate their need for medical care, but let's imagine that this behavioral medicine in tandem with medical treatment, with physical therapy, we're delivering whole person pain care and we can really help everyone living with pain get best results for pain relief. Oh, that's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear. And it, it, frankly, it's inspiring to think about this getting better, us being yeah. better at providing the services and, and our clients and those we serve benefiting from that training. I'm, I, I'm curious, Beth, you know, I'm thinking about the implications of our talk today and what that means, especially for those early in training. I think back to my own training. I, I actually, I was thinking, Beth, you were saying how medical providers have maybe even only a few hours of yeah. preparation around chronic pain training. And I think, gosh, mine was about the same as that, if not less. 
And I'm, I'm thinking like, what does this mean for trainees, uh, yeah. health service psychologists in training? Yeah, you know, it, it's such a great point. I had mentioned that in 2016, we published that national needs assessment on pain psychology services and training needs. And we actually surveyed 23 directors of psychology training programs. And we, we asked them if you were offered a, a plug and play training module, would you be interested in integrating this into your graduate training programs? And 100% said yes. Wow. So I think that really and truly, I mean, we, we need more of these packaged programs. I am aware that there are individuals at the American Psychological Association who have been created some workshops and some trainings for professionals, but we need a packaged training integrated into graduate school and even into fellowship programs for, um, for psychologists. And something like Empowered Relief, which is an absolutely packaged, ready to go, off-the-shelf training program that's evidence-based could really help shore up the core competencies of therapists in a number of days. So I think more of that is needed so that we're not just increasing therapist and psychologist awareness of all of the factors, but we actually need to give them the evidence-based formulas that they can start delivering in clinic tomorrow. Totally, totally. And I, I appreciate your, your kind of seriousness and intention around that as well, because it doesn't feel like enough to be equipped with the scale. The scale is, is huge. It's massive, as you were saying, maybe even 100 million people, one in three Americans dealing with some kind of pain like this. The scale is massive. And if we know as providers, we're going to be sitting down across from someone nowadays digitally, but if we know we're gonna be sitting across from someone and they might be experiencing that one in three, we've gotta do better. We've gotta work on this as well. And I, I just so appreciate Beth, you sharing your expertise, your time, and, and just the research that you've been participating in for years at this point with us all, I know as a health service psychologist myself, I am going to be benefiting from this podcast today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm curious if there's anything else you'd like to, to share with us before we run. Boy, well, I just wanna say first, thank you, Sam, for having me on the podcast. It was truly a delight to share this work and, and my thoughts on the topic. And, and I appreciate your connection with the topic too. I mean, it, it's, it's so true that if we're working with clients, we're, we are either treating pain or we're avoiding our client's pain because not only the one in three Americans who are living with pain, but there's the truism that when people are seeking mental health therapy or support, there's a greater preponderance of pain in that population because of the high comorbidities. So I hope that listeners are just inspired to learn more about what they can do to directly address pain and help clients achieve real and lasting relief. 
Oh, thank you so much, Beth. I really, really appreciate it. Now, before we go, I want to give a shout out to all doctoral students, postdoctoral trainees, and early career psychologists. The National Register is offering a full credentialing scholarship to help you bank hours, access the Journal of Health Service Psychology, and a wealth of training programs. But applications are due by April 15th, and you can apply on nationalregister.org. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. 